Well, you can turn with me, with me in your Bibles to the book of First John, chapter three. As we continue our studies in the book of assurance, First John, chapter three. We're going to look at verses 19 through 24 this morning, but I will begin reading at verse 11 to set the context. First John chapter three, we'll begin reading at verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren." But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we are thankful that after Christ made sacrifice for our sins, after he was raised from the dead, after he ascended into heaven, he is seated at your right hand. And we're thankful, O Father, that the Spirit has been poured out. Thank you that the agent of new creation has come down. And we are thankful that your spirit works in the hearts and lives of your people to regenerate, uh, to give the gifts of faith and repentance, to justify, to adopt, to sanctify, to preserve, and one day glorify. We are thankful that also the spirit has been given to each and every one of your people who believe on your name uh, as that gift. And we are thankful that the spirit bears witness in our hearts that we are the children of God. And we are thankful for the blessedness of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would send forth your spirit once again this morning. We pray that there are any here today who do not know you. We pray that you would save their souls, that you would work by your spirit with the word to give them new hearts, that they might have eyes to see and ears to hear uh, about the glories of Jesus Christ, that they might see their sin and see their need for a savior who is Christ the Lord. And we also pray for your saints. We pray that you would sanctify your people, that you would grow your sheep, that you would cause us to die to sin. Thank you that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is you who works in us both to will and to do. And we also ask that you send forth your spirit to give us illumination from on high to better understand what your word says. 
Thank you for your scriptures. We know that some things are difficult for us to grasp and understand. Even the so-called easy things are sometimes difficult for us to understand. But we ask and pray that you would give us that understanding. Please enlighten our minds, enlighten our hearts. Help us to learn more. Help us to grow more. Help us to understand more. And we ask and pray that you give us the assurance that we need. For so often we find assurances in other things. So often your people lack assurance. Yet we are thankful that our assurance does not lie in the strength of our faith, but it lies in the sufficiency of our Christ. And so help us to remember that. Help us to know that, that Christ is our assurance, that you, O God, are greater than even when our hearts condemn us. Help us to know our Lord. Help us to love our Lord. Help us to see that it is only in him where we find that assurance and all the power that you've given to us because of what he has done, uh, that you give us that assurance as well. So thank you that we can have assurance. Please be with the herding sheep. Please be with those uh, who are struggling, give them that assurance that they need. Please be with those who need a rebuke. Please be with the strong sheep as well. And we do pray that you would save the lost sheep. Thank you that you are God. Thank you that you do all things well. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, after hearing a challenging word or a difficult rebuke, we sometimes need some reassurance. Children, especially after some sort of discipline or unwarranted parental anger, need some assurance of a parent's love. And the same thing is true of the children of God in this world. God's people, especially those who struggle with assurance, knowing that they are in Christ, they have believed on Christ, but yet they have doubts. They have questions uh, that are in their minds. We need that assurance. We need that reminder of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after being told about love and about hate, we need that reminder of where our assurance lies. And while it is true, how we live can be an assurance and that will come up again this morning. Our ultimate assurance is not with ourselves, but it's with a greater God. It's with our God who is great, our God who forgives, and it is with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what John wants to reaffirm for us here as we turn to verses 19 through 24 of chapter 3. Now, you remember the whole book is about assurance. There are threats. There are false teachers who have come in to threaten the church at Ephesus. John is writing as their elder, as their pastor, to remind them and encourage them to tell them and assure them where their strength and hope lies. And it lies in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the false teachers were saying, you need other things other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You need special knowledge. You need a special experience. You need this, that, or the other. But John is reminding his hearers that the foundation of our assurance is in the one who is the word of life. The gospel is what gives us that assurance. And John structures his letter much like a sermon. The introduction of chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is that gospel presentation. What they saw, who they saw saw and he is the one that they then declare to uh, he is then declaring to the church at Ephesus and then point one of the sermon we saw how uh, we live in the light chapter one to the end of chapter two and then we are in that second part of the sermon how we live as the children of God chapter three all the way to chapter five 13. So he's assuring, he's reminding them. He's talked about God's love, talked about Christ's sacrifice. He's talked about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the lives that we live and how that can be assurance for the people of God as well. He wants to assure the people of God in the face of a condemning heart. 
And that's the problem that we see in the verses we're looking at today, when our hearts can condemn us. And this is for redeemed saints. This is for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes our remaining corruption, sometimes our own thoughts can get in our head. Sometimes we can doubt whether or not we are the children of God. Satan certainly can buffet, but sometimes thoughts enter into our minds on our own. Sometimes we can accuse our own souls before the judgment of God. We might ask a question. I haven't been as loving as I should. Am I actually a child of God? And so John comes to reassure his hearers in these verses. He reminds them of where they can go when their hearts condemn them. And he reminds us where we can go when our own hearts condemn us. And so we'll look at this idea of where we can go when our hearts condemn under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see when our hearts condemn, verses 19 and 20. Then secondly, we'll see when our hearts assure in verses 21 through 24. So when our heart condemns or when our hearts condemn, and then when our hearts assure. So let's first look at when our hearts condemn in verses 19 through 20, or when our heart condemns, verses 19 and 20. And we must be reminded of that context. Verses 11 through 18 do go uh, with verses 19 through 24. We saw that serious example of hatred. We saw how Cain is a prototype of murder. The one who hated his brother. The one who despised his brother's righteousness. Now John gives us New Testament explanation of what went on all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. Why did Cain hate his brother? Because Cain was of the devil... And Abel was of the Lord. Cain was uh, one who engaged in wickedness, and his brother was one who was covered in righteousness. And who did Cain hate? What did Cain hate? He hated his brother's righteousness. We saw that antithesis. We saw how the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, uh, manifests in the lives of Cain and Abel. And he talks about how the brethren, how the people of God are not supposed to hate. We're not supposed to despise. We're not supposed to be angry in our hearts. We're not supposed to murder with our minds. And so as we hear that, as we recognize, yeah, we shouldn't hate. The problem is, unfortunately, we do hate. (laughs) The problem is, unfortunately, we do get angry in our hearts and minds, even for the people of God. We get angry at all sorts of things, little things, small things, tiny things. I struggle with all sorts of vehicles in the world. You know, I have problems with people that cut me off. I struggle with bikers because they try and hog the road. I struggle with a jogger today. You have a sidewalk and yet you're running in the middle of the road. I get angry at those types of things in this world. And those are petty things, but there are other things we get angry for, right? We're easily provoked. The Bible says love is not provoked. I'm provoked a lot. I don't know about you, but I get provoked a lot. You see, we can then begin to question because I get angry, because I spaz out, because I, uh, I use harsh words with people. Am I actually a child of God? Now, thankfully, there is a good example of love. There is the one who laid down his life for his sheep, but he wants again to come and assure his people. He does say in verse 18, which is a transition verse, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. But even then, dear brethren, sometimes we're like, I do flatter. Sometimes I do say to people, or we might say to someone similar to what we see in James, oh, you're warm. I hope you're warm. I hope that's okay without providing a blanket. We sometimes do not care for others like we should. So questions can 
arise. If we're supposed to love one another, then am I actually a child of God? And sometimes our hearts then can condemn us. Our heart, we have, we get in our own heads. And so John understands that. John is a good pastor. He understands the needs of the church at Ephesus. He knows the tendencies of his own heart, and he knows the tendencies of the people of God. And notice we do even see will persuade in verse 19. They shall, it's a future. He understands there are going to be times in the people in our in our lives when we're going to have to persuade ourselves to remind ourselves that we are actually part of the truth. And so in verse 19, by this, we know that we are of the truth. And he's going to go to going to go on to explain what that means by this uh, sometimes goes with what came before. But a lot of times it goes with what comes after. How is it that we are? No, we are of the truth. Well, we need to persuade our hearts about the goodness of our God. And so he says in verse 19, we shall persuade. We shall have a theological conversation with our hearts before him. And he goes on to explain why in verse 20, for if our hearts uh, heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, some people take verse 19 negatively speaking about those who are not in Christ, speaking about those who are before the judgment seat of God and their hearts condemn them. And God sees God knows all things. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think John is encouraging the people here. And I think Greek grammar helps us here. I'm not going to go into all the nitty gritties with it, but here's how it probably should be translated. We shall persuade or assure our hearts before him with regard to whatever our heart condemns us. I'll say that again. We shall assure or persuade our hearts before him with regard to whatever our hearts condemn us. That is, as we before the judgment seat of God, as we stand before his throne, there are going to be times when our own hearts question whether or not we are the people of God. And so when our heart condemns us, when we have those questions and those doubts, we need to persuade ourselves. We shall persuade. We shall assure ourselves, assure our hearts before him with regard to whatever our heart condemns us, because God is greater than our heart. God is mightier. God is more gracious. God is more kind than you and I. We have to lay hold of that promise, don't we? That our hearts really are forgiven in him. There are some people who might say in this world, I'm pretty decent. I'm pretty good. I'm great. God, why wouldn't God accept me? And we know the Bible talks about how there is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who does anything good. A lot of people deceive themselves thinking they can do and earn their way to heaven. But our righteousness is like filthy rags before God most high. We need a righteousness that is not our own. We need someone else to be righteous for us. And that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But sometimes there are some people who might say, I am so wicked. How could God forgive? Both are examples of unbelief. For has not God said, whoever believes on me shall be saved. Whoever believes on me shall have their sins forgiven. And so the blessed thing about assurance is it's not based upon the strength of our assurance, but it's based upon God who is greater. And so when we have certain moments, when our hearts buffet against us, we might say things like, I did lash out. At my child or spouse or jogger. I did look at something that I shouldn't have. 
I am a greedy miser and I don't care for other people. I covet all the time. Am I actually a child of God? People have those questions. And brethren, all those things that we mentioned, being greedy, being, you know, uh, looking at something that you shouldn't, lashing out, those are all legitimate sins. But the beautiful thing is that they are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have those doubts when we sin, but we have to go to our God and confess it to him. We have an advocate with Jesus Christ, the righteous, uh, with the, uh, the right hand of God, the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, according to first John two, two. But sometimes there are things that are not legitimate at all that might bind our conscience. Now, that language of condemn there, uh, it's only found three times in the word of God, twice here. But the other time is in Mark chapter 7. And in Mark chapter 7, it has to do with legalism. That is taking man-made laws and making them God's law. We already struggle with our own sins. We already struggle with the commandments of God. We all struggle uh, just thinking about what God asks of us, that sometimes people come along and take the commandments of man and make them um, assert that they are the doctrines of God. And it just puts more of a burden on people, doesn't it? That's exactly what the false teachers are doing in Ephesus. They're saying, you don't need Jesus. You need to have this experience. You need to have this secret knowledge. And then you're the guy sitting there or the gal sitting there. We don't discriminate here. Who's going, why? In the, I haven't had that experience. How do I know that I'm a child of God? I'm not like these other people. It's like Pentecostalism, right? Not to pick on Pentecostalism. But if you haven't had spoken in tongues, you're somehow of a lesser Christian, aren't you? You haven't had this miracle happen to you or had this healing or seen this. Exp- then you're not really a true child. I, 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 they would never say that, but kind of. You're a second-tier Christian. That's exactly what's going on with the problems that are here. It binds the people of God. And in Mark 7, we see this condemnation language. It's with the Pharisees when they get their, you know, whatever in a bonnet, over washing hands. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they condemned. You see, we struggle already, and here come the Pharisees going, you didn't wash your hands, you're probably going to hell. I mean, talk about pairing, uh, uh, putting burdens on top of people above and beyond sin that already weighs us down. So sometimes there are legitimate things, legitimate sins that we struggle with that are truly and actually sins. But sometimes there are other things that are not sins at all. And even here, we try to be careful. We want to avoid legalism as much as possible, moralism as much as possible, taking the doctrines of uh, man and making them the doctrines of God. But uh, we try to avoid those things because it weighs people down. And even the people of God, changed, saved, renewed heart, still can struggle with assurance. And so we shall persuade our hearts with regard to whatever our heart condemns us. We have that talk with ourselves. We think, well, I know that that's true. I know I shouldn't steal. I know I shouldn't be grumpy. I know I shouldn't be angry, but I do it anyway. Am I really a child of God? Those questions come up. And so what do we need to do when our heart condemns? Where does our assurance lie? Well, it does lie with a greater God. We do need to have theological self-talk with ourselves, don't we? When you have that holy chit chat concerning the promises of God, 
And he says, if our heart condemns us, we shall persuade ourselves. We shall talk to ourselves about the promises of God. I mean, the whole book is littered with all the promises of God. He who is the word of life, Christ, our advocate, don't sin. But if you do, we have our advocate, Trinity. We talk about the anointing that we have, the Holy Spirit, God's love for his people, children of God, commandments themselves, even are an assurance for the people of God. We don't live it perfectly, but if we seek to do what is pleasing in God's sight, that can be an assurance for us. We don't do it perfectly, but because we are the children of God, all those things come up. And so we need to persuade ourselves. We need to talk to ourselves. Is Christ's work not sufficient? And if Christ's work is uh, sufficient and he has given to us the Holy Spirit, shall we not have confidence before our Lord? And so God's people need that assurance. God's people need that reminder because we can have moments of crisis. And brethren, there are many examples in history where the people of God, strong men, Men that you read about who have crises of faith sometimes. Martin Luther, right after the Diet of Worms, or however you want to say that, right after he said or possibly said, here I stand, but the substance is there. He took his stand when it came to the doctrines of grace and the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of the church. He went into exile for a year. He still had to flee. And solitary confinement does nobody any good, right? And he got into his own head. He had moments where he's like, am I the heretic? (laughs) Am I the one in the wrong here? Am I the one who is not right concerning these things? And God helped him. God encouraged him. But he had a moment of crises. He had a moment of doubt. God's people can have doubt. Thomas Cranmer, as he tried to reform the church in England under the reign of Bloody Mary, as she's persecuting evangelicals, persecuting those who are against Roman Catholicism, he recanted supposedly several times. He was beaten six times or something like that. He was beaten. He got it out of him. They tried to have him recant, and he did, brethren. It's one thing to say, I'll stand for Christ when we're sitting in the pew and when we're driving our air-conditioned cars and we're sitting at home in our nice, comfy chairs reading theological books. It's another thing when someone's smacking you in the face with a stick or a rod. It's quite different. And remember, one who denies Christ That is not an unforgivable sin. We see that with Peter. And so Thomas Cranmer had a crisis of faith. Now, thankfully, uh, Queen Mary tried to kibosh the whole uh, Reformation by, even after he recanted, by still bringing him to the stake. And when he got to the stake, he recanted of his recanting. And then he said, with the hand that I used to recant, that'll burn first. And guess what he did? Boom, that burned First, he still died for his God, but he had a crisis of faith. The people of God can have that. It might be in those moments, but even just in our daily life, we can have those moments. And so we need to be reminded of where our strength lies. For we shall assure ourselves before him with regard to whatever our heart condemns us. God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God is the great judge, and he knows all things, including those who are his, including those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Dear brethren, the assurance is if we believe on Jesus by faith, we shall be justified in God's sight. That means we shall be declared not guilty in God's sight. We've been made um, 
declared righteous before the judgment seat of God. I haven't heard that yet. Have you heard that yet? Have you heard that from the judgment seat of God? Have you heard this declaration from God on high that you're not guilty? We're going to hear that on judgment day when we stand before the judgment seat of God. Those who are in Christ shall have that declaration, not guilty. But brethren, it is true now. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to be assured of that, that if we believed on Christ, we are not guilty now. That we are righteous in God's sight now. And nothing contributes to that justification except our sin that held Christ upon that cross. But nothing contributes. Our works don't contribute to our standing before God. Nothing. Because our works in and of themselves are filthy rags. We need someone who is not our own, and that is Jesus Christ. And God knows those who are his. And we need to be persuaded by those very things. Our standing before him is founded on Christ. I love our confession, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 2nd London. Chapter 18 on assurance uses what we've seen in 1 John 3, especially beginning at verse 14 till the end in verse 24. It is used as proof text to describe what assurance is. But one thing that is said in paragraph two, this certainly is not a bare conjectural or probable persuasion rounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. That is where our assurance lies. He goes on to talk about the inward evidence of graces by the Spirit, the testimony of the Spirit, witnessing with our hearts that we are the children of God. But the first and most important thing, the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. And we have someone at the right hand of God the Father pleading on behalf of his people. His promises are greater than our remaining corruption. His promises are greater than what our hearts may say about us with that remaining corruption. And faith is laying hold of that grace of God, regardless of what our hearts may say. It's taking God at his word. It is believing in his promises. It's recognizing that it is only in him where we have that assurance and strength that comes from him. It's not the weakness of our faith. It's not the, uh, the strength of our faith. It is the strength of our God who gives us that gift of faith and Christ who is at the right hand of God the Father. He is sufficient. He is all we need. He is the one who gives us assurance. We need to be reminded of that, brethren. When we have moments of crisis, we need constant biblical, theological self-talk. Isn't that what prayer is for? <laughs> Isn't that what meditating is for? As we ha have this struggle, the Bible does say that you shouldn't be angry. You shouldn't look at things. You shouldn't covet. But the Bible also says that all our trespasses are forgiven in him. All our trespasses are forgiven in him. Colossians chapter 2. There is a place that we can go when our hearts condemn us. Stott says it is the mind's knowledge by which the heart's doubt may be silenced. It is the truth. It is scripture. It is the things of God. We feel something. We desire something that we shouldn't. The exercise of that uh, will, that, that movement of the will. But the mind reminds us of where our strength lies. We have to have that talk with ourselves. And 
Hopefully you come to church and you hear God talk by way of his word and are reminded of that yourselves, are reminded of where your strength comes from, of where your hope lies as we read the word of God, as we pray the word of God, and as we come and hear the word of God preached. There is a place we can go when our hearts condemn, and we need that reminder each and every day. So that's what our heart, when our hearts condemn. Let's then look secondly at when our heart assures, verses 21 through 24. When our heart assures, verses 21 through 24. Notice, but the situation here is the heart is not condemned. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. That is, as we grow in strength, as we grow in assurance, as we grow in that reminder, there are times in the Christian life where we are very persuaded and assured. The confession again in chapter 18, paragraph 3 says, This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that the true, a true believer may wait long. Some true believer might wait a long time before they have that assurance of faith. Yet being enabled by the spirit to know the things which are freely given of God, he may without extraordinary revelation in the right use of means attain thereunto. And therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy and in the Holy Spirit in love and thankfulness to God and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So far is it from inclining men to looseness. If we've been changed by Christ, if we are in Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit, if we are the children of God and we are assured of that thing, what should that give us? Assurance. And as we have that assurance, it should give us that boldness before our God in prayer. William Tyndale likens it to children and God's people are kind of like this. You go through struggles, you go through periods when you struggle with sin. I go through periods of when I struggle with sin and you question certain things, don't you? You question things. But then there are times where God's helped you with that sin. God's your prayer life is much better. Your Bible readings are wonderful and you feel bolder to come before God most high, don't you? Doesn't that happen in the Christian life? We go through moments where you're like, my Bible reading's terrible. My prayer life is awful. I'm struggling with this sin. Does God love me? And then there are other times you're reminded and persuaded and assured and you feel that confidence. You see, when we're assured, when we're persuaded, we go to God with much more vigor and much more peace. These are all things that we should pursue. Now, whether we feel like that or not, doesn't change the fact that we can have boldness before God because of our high priest, Hebrews chapter four. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses is like us in every way yet without sin. And therefore we can boldly be go before the throne of God in prayer. And so after we've persuaded ourselves, after we've gone from verses 19 and 20 to 21, we can then have that confidence and brethren, sometimes it happens in the same prayer session, right? You come before God with lack of assurance. You come before God crying out, wondering where he is. And then 
as you're praying and as you're speaking to God, as you're bringing your problems before him, all of a sudden things start to change, don't they? You know how I know that this happens? It's because of what the psalmists say so often. See the flow of the Psalms many times, David or one of the writers, they come before God and they're crying out to him. God, where are you? What's happening? Why are the enemies around me? Please forgive me of all my sins. I did all these terrible things. And then as the Psalm goes, things change. You are the God of salvation and you, I put my trust. It happens within a moment. That's why brethren, we just need to pray to our God. Just go before your God and start to pray. He will hear you not for the strength of your prayer either, but because of Jesus Christ. It's good to arrange our prayers. It's good to be thoughtful in our prayers. It's good to pray God's thoughts back to him with open Bibles, but just go to him and start praying. Ask him for help. Ask him for strength. And even as we pray, and there's usually like a flow of prayer and then meditating, and then you praying again, and then thinking and contemplating and being assured of the things of God. That's how life and prayer seems to flow. And so after we've been condemned and after we've come before God, been reminded of his promises, then we can go to him with much more boldness. And what's interesting is this language of if our heart does not condemn, we have confidence toward God. There's interplay in John between two times, we could say. There's the time when we stand before God on that judgment day. We shall have boldness in that day. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. We see this in 1 John 4, 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. We already saw this in 1 John 2, 28. Now, little children abide in him that when he appears, when Christ comes again, we have confidence and are not be ashamed before him at his coming. Why can we have confidence before him at his coming? Because of Christ and being clothed in him. And just as we can have confidence and will have confidence when he comes, we can have confidence now. Right? He is the same Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he will hear us. God will hear us now. Even though we don't see him, we love him, then we can be assured that he is a God who shall hear us. And we can then have that boldness before him. And if we then have that boldness, if we have this confidence before God, there are blessings that that confidence can bring. And one assurance that we can have, one blessing that we can have is our assurance in prayer. And we see this in verse 22. And verse 22 kind of pairs with 514 of 1 John. And it helps us understand. But look at verse 22 of chapter 3. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We ask whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, health, wealth, prosperity preachers have commandeered these verses, haven't they? You want to have a Rolls Royce? You want $5 million in the bank account? You want to have luscious hair as you grow into your old age? Well, ask the Lord and he shall give it to you. That's not what this text is about, is it? When we ask God, when we pray before him, we're praying his thoughts back to him. We're praying his will back to him. And we ask that whatever is according to his will would be done. Notice in chapter five, verse 14. 
Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's not about being a mercenary before God. That's how we typically pray, right? Lord, I want these things. I want that thing. I want this thing. That's usually how it is. But we need to pray to God. And when we pray to God, prayer is about praying his promises back to him. I love how it's in the children's catechism. Start them early. What is prayer? Praying the promises of God back to him. We come before him and say, Lord, I'm a child of God. I'm struggling with this sin. Please forgive me as you've said. Lord, I'm a child of God. I'm struggling with this sin. Please help me to honor and glorify you. Will he not help you? Will he not give you the strength that you need in your battles against sin? Lord, you said that, the, that this, this life we live is a battle, a warfare, the spirit against the flesh. Here is the fruit of the spirit. I have died to sins. I've been crucified to those things. I have died with Christ. Now help me to walk in them. Isn't that the confidence that we should have that God is faithful and God is true? Do we ever pray that way, dear brethren? I'm not saying that we should be um, obnoxious in our prayers. We still need to be reverent, but we can pray the you saids to God. I had a grade five teacher who hated the you saids. Parents, I think you know what the you saids are. That is, you say something. And then you tell your child that you're going to do that thing. And then you don't do that thing. And your child goes, but you said, right? Usually it's in a whiny sort of way. He hated that sort of thing. But the beautiful thing about our God, and again, we're not supposed to be irreverent. We're not supposed to grumble and complain. But we can come before God and have theological you saids. You said, Lord. You have spoken. And as we've read and as uh, Brother Howie read Joshua 24, the main idea of Joshua is that there are no falling words. God kept his promise to Abraham and God will keep his promises to you and I. And if we sin, there's an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We should have that assurance. Perhaps there's a parallel with Matthew chapter 7. When it comes to praying before God most high, ask, seek, and knock. And it's all in connection with the, the, the kingdom of heaven, the things of God. Um, oh, that's Mark. That's why I can't find it. Matthew chapter 7. When he says in verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Forever who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And it's in the context of not worrying, the context of not judging, the context of not laying up treasures in heaven, the context of not fasting, only to be seen by others. Brethren, people do spiritual things to be seen by others. You can pray and ask God to help you to do things not to be seen by others. Not, as 1 John 3, 18 says, not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, you're still going to fail. We're all going to fail. But there is, again, that assurance that there is mercy in Christ. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. But he says something interesting. Because we keep his commandments and do things that are pleasing in his sight. The assurance that the commandments give 
is that we are in him. They are not a condition. They're not the way in which we have standing before God. But if we are in him and we keep his commandments, we can, we can have assurance before him. Gill says, not that these things ingratiate into the love and favor of God or the causes and conditions of it. For the love of God is prior to anything. We see that in three and we see that in four of first John. Nor are they the causes of men's acceptance with God. For the acceptance both of persons and services is only in Christ the beloved. But these things are what God approves when done in faith, from a principle of love and with a view to his glory. And since he hears such persons that are worshipers of him and do his will and has promised good things to them, this is therefore a reason strengthening their confidence in him that what they ask, they shall receive. Or as Tyndale says, the child that keepeth his father's commandments is sure of himself. Brethren, again, we've talked about that. If we're feeling good, we're doing good, we have our assurance in Christ, we're much more assured of ourselves versus the times we're going through great struggles. But the child that keepeth his father's commandments is sure of himself and bold in his father's presence to speak and ask what he will. If we do what is pleasing, we can have that assurance. And if we keep his commandments, we have that assurance because it flows out of being found in him. Therefore, we can ask and he will give us the strength that we need. So we can have assurance in prayer. We can have assurance with the commandments. And notice in verse 23, he explains further what the commandment is. Notice that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Faith is a gift, according to Ephesians chapter 2. But the call of faith is a command, isn't it? Believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And then, flowing out of that, love one another. And so the call for those who do not know Christ, who have not believed on his name or relying upon anything other than Christ himself, believe on him and you shall be saved and find forgiveness. And when I say believe, I mean believe that he really lived, died and rose again. Believe that he really is God. Believe that in him there is forgiveness of sins. When it comes to faith, there's the facts of faith. Jesus lived, died and rose again. There's the understanding of that. Yeah, I get the fact that he, it says that he rose again, but then you have to believe it, right? A lot of people get the first two. I understand what the Bible's saying, but I don't believe it. You need to believe it because it absolutely is true. Believe on Jesus and you shall be saved. Believe on the name of his son that we should believe upon him. That is a call to all those here today who do not know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he will forgive you of your sins, your works, your goodness, filthy rags before him. But there is one who will clothe you in his righteousness, namely Christ the Lord. Believe upon him, you shall be saved. And if you remember, too, the main idea, the main thesis sentence, thesis verse of 1 John is 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. If you believe on the name of his Son, you have eternal life. And he is writing to assure the people of God. And so the commandment, believe on his name. And then if you believed on his name, love one another. It's what he's been talking about since verse 10. Uh, he's talked about it in chapter two. He will continue to talk about it in chapter four as well. 
But one thing that we need to highlight, what does it mean to love one another? We've already talked about it a little bit, but he says something to explain this. As he gave us commandment. Why would he add that there? As he gave us commandment. Now remember, brethren, the false teachers. They were saying, here's how you love God. Here's how you have assurance before God. But it's not based upon the commandments of men, but based upon what God has said. How do we love God? How do we believe? How are we saved and how we have right standing before God? It is what God has said, not what man has said. And there are many who claim to be uh, Christians, but have not believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and are relying upon so many other things. Every other religion provides zero assurance, right? I mean, it's all about what you do. It's all about tipping the scales in, you know, one way. It's all about what we can contribute. But there's only one religion that says someone else does it for you. And that is Jesus Christ. That is Christianity. And so we believe upon his name. He has given us this commandment. And these false teachers were taking the people away from where their assurance lies in Christ Jesus. They were saying it's not Christ, but it's all these other things. But John is writing to remind them it is in Jesus Christ where our assurance lies. He has given us that commandment. It comes from God. So we can have assurance with prayer. We can have assurance with the commandments that we are in him. And we can also have assurance of God's abiding presence by the spirit. Verse 24. Now he who keeps his commandments, still talking about this, abides in him and he in him. We have that union with God in Christ Jesus and those who seek to, by God's grace, not perfectly honor God by keeping the commandments, abide in him. And so there is that assurance that we can have. So the commandments, that's the tangible outworking of it, the tangible recognition. But then notice the internal working. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. I always make the comment that reformed folk really are a people of the Holy Spirit. It's not in the way the Pentecostals would say that they're the people of the Holy Spirit. But when we talk about what the Spirit does, the Spirit is very clearly, in God's word, the agent of new creation. I believe in the importance of tongues at Pentecost, the importance of tongues as a redemptive historical expression to highlight the fulfillment of God's word promised in the old. But I do not believe they continue on for us today. We have the word of God. Those gifts were for revelation to reveal something about God's unfolding redemptive history. We don't need those anymore because we have it all revealed for us here in the word of God. The next great redemptive historical event is when Christ comes again. But thankfully, after Christ sat down at the right hand of God, the father, he poured out his spirit. And that's why we see in Acts chapter 1, he's got the promise of the Holy Spirit that's going to come. That's why we see in Acts chapter 2, after Peter preaches to the, the men at Jerusalem, what must we do? You must repent uh, and be baptized and receive the promise. I'm using, I'm butchering that language. I want to get it exactly. Acts chapter 2 to make sure that I explain it properly. But the promise that is mentioned in Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he says, repent in verse 38 and uh, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise 
of the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children, not a paedo-baptist text. It's not teaching you baptized babies here. It's talking about those who receive the Holy Spirit. And to all who are far, far off, as many, look, as many as the Lord our God will call. But the promised mentioned there is not going back to Abraham and his seed, but it's primarily about, although there certainly is the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, but the promise is the Holy Spirit. When we think about what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit uh, brings salvation, that is, applies the benefits that Christ has purchased. He regenerates, gives new hearts, Ezekiel chapter 36. Jesus applies that in John chapter 3. The Spirit is the one who we have spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 1. And the Spirit is also given as a gift. The Spirit is given as a gift and indwells every single one of his people. The Spirit is called a guarantee, according to Ephesians 1 and 2 Corinthians 2 and 5, or 1 and 5. It is a guarantee. It's a seal. It is this assurance that Christ shall come again. It's the down payment. We have the agent of new creation as we wait for the actual new creation. And so as we make our way to that celestial city, as we have struggles and have doubts, who is it that indwells us? It is the Holy Spirit. Who is it that we have? It is the Holy Spirit. The people of God have that anointing. And John also reminded them of that as well. You have the truth. You have the anointing. You have the Holy Spirit who enlightens hearts and enlightens minds and gives eyes to see, but he also bears witness in the hearts and lives of God's people. Romans chapter 8. Brethren, we have the Holy Spirit, whether we feel like it or not. If you've believed on Jesus Christ and confessed him as Lord, nobody can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit who indwells us, and it is he is a gift that is given when we think about the triune work of God. We have the mission of the Son by taking on human flesh, and we have the mission of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And how is it that the one who is the word of life, who the one who's at seated at the right hand of God the Father, is still with us until the end of the age? It's by and through the mission of the Holy Spirit. The outer mission or the outward mission of the Spirit is seen at Pentecost. The inward mission is in the hearts and lives of God's people. And brethren, if you believed on Christ, notice what he says. And by this, we know that he abides in us and by the spirit, by the spirit whom God has given us. How are we regenerated? How Christ dwells in us? How the spirit dwells in us? How we keep the commandments? Galatians 5, they're called the fruit of the fruit of the spirit for a reason. Are they not? How do we keep it? By the power of the Holy Spirit, it is God who works in us both to will and to do. And so John here is assuring his people. He's assuring you, if you are a child of God, if you believed upon him, if you've looked to him for salvation, you are a child of God and God is greater than your heart. He's giving us the assurance that we need in Christ Jesus and all the benefits that come from being found in him, even with that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the assurance that God's people need. And this is the assurance that we can have when we pray to our God. God hears us. Should that make us want to pray more? 
I know prayer is hard, dear brother, and I'm the pastor. I understand that. Prayer is hard. Reading the Bible is hard. What do I pray? All those things are difficult and hard. But brethren, we do so, or at least should do so, with open Bibles and self-talk. I don't want to pray. You need to pray. You have to talk to yourself, dear brethren. You have to use God's word against your own heart. You have to speak to yourself with the scriptures and with the promises of God. And you have to hear someone else speak to you and tell you where you can go when your heart is feeling condemned. There is a God that we can go to who gives us the assurance that we need. And he will persuade us that we are of the truth. That's the comfort that the people of God need. Now, as I've said already, as I've called for those who are not in Christ Jesus, have not believed upon him, there's only one way to have an assured heart before God most high, before the judgment seat of God. If you've sinned against God, if you, and you have sinned against God, you've violated his commandments, you do wicked things, think wicked thoughts, one wicked thought is enough to damn someone to hell forever. Before the judgment seat of God right now, you are condemned. But there is one way to have salvation and forgiveness. And that is, as John said, believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you believe upon the name of his son, Jesus Christ, you shall have everlasting life and you shall have assurance before the judgment seat of God. Thanks be to God for a God who knows his people and gives us the assurance that we need. Well, let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the triune work that you've done to save sinners like us. Thank you as you accommodate to our language, the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit does apply. And we are thankful that your people have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We know that we can grieve the Spirit for which we ask for forgiveness, but we know that your people can never lose the Spirit. And so thank you that even when we speak to ourselves, when we have that remaining corruption and those moments of sin and often those wicked thoughts that we uh, think and those words that we speak and those actions that we do, uh, that we know that our consciences can be uh, wounded. We know that we can be shaken. We know that we can have that sensible countenance of you lifted from us. Be it help us to be renewed, help us to be strengthened, help us to come back and be reminded that you are greater than our hearts. And if we have that boldness, if we've given and granted that assurance, may you give us boldness in prayer. May it cause us to pray all the more. Help us to come to you in prayer when we suffer, but help us to come to you when we are assured to thank you, to praise you, to ask you to help us to grow all the more in the things of you. We know that we need your strength. We know that we need your aid from on high. We know that you've redeemed your people, given new hearts and renewed minds. And we know what is right and good and true. Yet so often we don't do what is right and good and true. And so we are thankful that you give us strength by your spirit. Thank you that our standing before you uh, is based upon Christ and his righteousness. And we pray that you'd help us as your people, uh, based upon what he has done, to honor and glorify you by the power uh, of the Holy Spirit. So thank you for the assurance that you give to your people. If there are any here today who are feeling and sensing and uh, struggling with doubts today, may they find their assurance in Christ Jesus and the sufficiency of his work. May they find their assurance, an infallible assurance, in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, may you help them in their walk. May you help them uh, to put to death sin day by day. Help us all to put to death sin day by day and grow into the image of Christ. And we all pray that we would grow to that peace and joy, be enlarged in our peace and our joy in the things of God. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please, by your spirit with the word, please save them. Please give them new hearts. Please help them to see their wickedness. Help them to see their need for Christ. And may you give them that gift of faith that they might believe upon him and be saved. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for the assurances that you provide for your people. We pray that you be glorified now in the name of Christ.